0: I auctioned a portrait of Stalin. It was an old portrait of Stalin done in the 1930s and it was auctioned. I got the job of auctioning it to people in the room and somebody bought it. And some very, very moralistic person came up to me and said, I think it's terrible that you're auctioning this picture, someone as evil as that, to raise money for charity. I went to one of the Orthodox priests and he said, what are you talking about? Finally, Stalin has actually done something good. <laughs>
1: Book Society, welcome to the podcast. I'm here with Julian Gallant, a classical conductor, a former candidate for UK Parliament, possibly a future candidate for UK Parliament, a well-read, intelligent, and brilliant English person, and I'm here with him discussing probably the best book written in English, Middlemarch, written by a young lady by the name of Marianne Evans, better known to us as George Eliot. I was a little bit resistant to read this book. My mom has been recommending it forever. My mom, also Julian, who you don't know, is a little bit upset with you because she really wanted to do Middlemarch on the podcast, but you picked it first. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. she's been trying to get me to read it forever. And I read it when you selected it. And it is true to form, it is one of the greatest books ever written. They say that it also reads you. You read different things into it when you read it at different. This is what we're
0: going to talk about. Yes, absolutely.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I actually realized. So I picked up this edition, which is an edition I've had for a long time, and I thought I hadn't read Middlemarch, but there are notes in my handwriting all the way through this edition. So
0: you've obviously been through.
1: Apparently, I did read it, (laughs) and it was interesting to see my notes and just notice different things as I went through. So Middlemarch. So why did you pick this one?
0: Well, by the way, Lucas, thank you very much. And uh, you're on my payroll, by the way, for giving me such a good blowdown. <laughs> my pleasure. Good to see you, by the way. It's a lovely thing you're doing, musicians talking about literature, because literature and music are so interconnected. And not just because people set poetry and songs the the construction of literature is so closely linked to music so i think it's a good idea we're talking about it but don't hold me to it don't hold me to any scholarly you know when you mentioned your mum, now i'm terrified because i'm sure she's going to listen to what i say about it
1: (laughs) well you should know that most of the people listening to this podcast will be in the united states and your (laughs) accent gives you quite a bit of authority oh really
0: yes so You can pretty much say whatever you want. Well, that gives me a huge sense of security. Now, I agree with you. You've already said things about Middlemarch, which you've stolen from me joyously. I was just going to say exactly the same thing. The greatest novel in the English language, that's a matter of opinion. That's a matter of judgment. That's a matter of the way you feel at a certain time, a certain place. So I also think it is one of the very greatest novels. The Public do too, Amazing enough. It's number 10 on the greatest books of all time in this country. I think Pride and Prejudice beats it in the most popular books of all time, but it's up there. My relationship, we have what's called GCSE, which is O-levels, ordinary levels you do when you're 15. And then you have two more years at school when you do your A-levels. So that's the English education system. For A-levels, you narrow it down to three subjects and you have just three, possibly four subjects. I picked French German, and music uh, as my three A-levels. But because of that, I had to do a course in non-specialist English. I had a class, which was a fun class, didn't have an exam at the end of it, but it's just to make sure everybody kept up some command of the English language and some reading. In that class, I was also lucky enough to have a one-on-one exchange with a teacher about Middlemarch and a few other novels as well, but Middlemarch was one of them. And he made damn sure that I read this novel when I was 15 and it stuck with me. It stuck with me for many things. Part of it was because I had someone to guide me through it and to talk about it with me, which was very important, but also because it's a very, very accessible novel, even for a young person. A young person can read Middlemarch, where it might be difficult for a young person sometimes to read some other works of literature, like, for example, Thackeray, you know, is pretty difficult for a young person to read. Thomas Hardy, is so violent and so harsh that he's sometimes difficult for a young person to read and understand or get to grips with. But with Muddle March, it is possible for a young person to read it, and then it's possible to read it, as you say, as you get older, your views of it change, and you change, and it changes you, and you see things in it. And there's a lot to do in the way this brilliant person writes. Just as a sort of general thing to start with, what I've noticed about it, the way she writes English is so timeless. And by the way, Jane Austen is like this too. It's very declarative. It's very direct. It doesn't get swamped in an abundance of smaller clauses. Where Dickens, for example, starts a sentence, you get the impression he doesn't know how the sentence is going to end. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it ends the way he feels like it might end when he's in the middle of the sentence, and you get rather lost in it. But with Eliot, you feel she's in command of her material all the time. She's actually conceptualized that writing from the very beginning to the very end, and wherever you are in it, you're part of that conception. And it is an absolutely massive conception. So it is an enormous conception. Its subtitle might have been A Paradigm of Life or A Snapshot of Humanity or something like that, of course. The only thing I find unconvincing about Middlemarch, two things, actually. One of them is the title itself is Middlemarch, and the second thing is the place it's set in, which is a place called Loamshire, Both of those titles do not ring true as English towns. Okay, Middlemarch, it sounds as if it's a sort of translation from a European town. It doesn't sound like a genuine English town. And Loamshire, there's Buckinghamshire and there's Berkshire and there's lots of other shires, but Loamshire doesn't ring true. And I think this was intentional. I think she made up a title which didn't quite ring true to make you think, well, she's called it that, but it could be about anywhere. It could be about any place, any time, anywhere. And I think she did it intentionally because I think she's such a careful and intelligent writer. I don't think she does anything by accident. And the one thing she would have thought carefully about is the title.
1: It's funny how those things get lost because Middlemarch to me sounds like such an iconic English name because I know that it's an iconic English novel. But in Don Quixote, Don Quixote de la Mancha was a joke. It was the equivalent to us of saying, you know, Don Quixote of rural Kansas. You know, La Mancha was a nowhere place, but now it's famous because it's the title
0: of the book. Very similar. I think Cervantes probably knew that. They make up a title because they don't want you to think there was a place called Middlemarch where you can go and find Middlemarch. That's not the point at all. It's a snapshot of people, and it could have been you or me. It could have been anyone else living that. of course, the incredible thing about it, it is absolutely timeless, everything that's expressed in it. Should we talk a little bit about the book itself, about the actual substance of the book? Is it a romance or is it a kind of documentary about early Victorian life? You know, that's the big question. It is a romance. I mean, the very beginning, you hit this wonderful lady, this sort of goddess, Dorothea. You come across her and she's too good to be true. I mean, she's totally beautiful and she's young and she's youthful and she's energetic. She's charitable. She's just this sort of fantastic person that you think, well, mm, we've heard all this before. That's not the kind of people I see around me. But she's absolutely the star. And, you know, that's one of the narrative threads is that romance about Dorothy.
1: So that's funny that you think that she's the star. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. I mean this is actually I think an age-old debate about this book is who is the main character? There's some argument to be made that Litgate is the main character.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it started as two stories, by the way. I mean, it's a combination of two stories that she'd written, and she's kind of combined them together. And intentionally, she creates this kind of parallel, and the characters meet, and everybody meets together, of course, but there's a kind of parallel going on, isn't there? So you've got Dorothea, you've got her marriage to Kazorban, who at 45, of course, is not old by our standards, but He's presented as an older man who dies and then she marries Will. And that's one sort of narrative. And you kind of know at the beginning that Dorothea is going to find her way into a wonderful marriage for all time. You kind of know that's going to happen at the beginning. You've got the other narrative, well, of the many narratives, you've got the one with Lydgate. He's sort of landing in this provincial town with his big ideas. And then his relationship with the townspeople, his financial problems, his marriage, his very bad marriage. And at the end of the book, his future and Demise, which is all kind of sad. And you kind of know, at the beginning of the book, that things are not going to end very well for Lydgate. I've always thought that.
1: So what struck me in this reading was the ambition of all the young characters. All the old characters, when we meet them, and they're, you know, adults, they're all kind of just living their lives and they're content in their place. But the young characters really want to make an impact and really want to do things. And none of them really end up doing it. Nobody really reaches their ambitions in this book. There's all this ambition and there's all this, I, <laughs> that's the word I was looking for. There's all this idealism and it just gets beaten out of these characters by life, which is tragic to me. So I don't know if you've written a book or are working on a book, but Mr. Casabon is quite a horrifying specter to anyone who has ever Absolutely. embarked on any large project.
0: Oh, Lydgate's a horrifying <laughs> specter as well, by the way. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I think about this all the time because I'm writing a book about art and technology, and that's so vague that sometimes I think like, oh, maybe I'm writing the key to all mythologies, which is, for the listeners, the book that Casabon was trying to write but never finished and was also painfully unaware that much more detailed work had been done on it in languages that he did not read. But he intentionally didn't read them.
0: There's a parallel to this I once saw. You know, the composer Pierre Boulez, who died at age 90 last year, a famous contemporary composer. And I remember seeing an interview with him when he was very old. And he said, you know, I'm rewriting this piece. He said, I hope I do not finish it. And I thought, how strange that is. But I sort of understand, Keselman doesn't actually want to finish his work. He just wants to be sort of immersed in it, embroiled in it. The kind of person who wants to finish his work is Caleb Garth. That's the kind of very practical, solid person who says, I've got to finish that bit of work and he finishes that bit of work. They stand against each other. He's
1: essentially a property manager. Yeah, he's a property manager,
0: but very, very well-trained and a huge character and a very
1: genuine heart as well. One of the people in the book that I would probably want to meet in person and whose company
0: I would enjoy. <laughs> you can believe he exists, actually. He does exist. You can believe that person, the kind of person that exists. We know people like that very much. Yeah. Caleb Goth's part of another narrative, of course, isn't he? The sort of down-to-earth romance with Fred and Mary. And finally, you know, Fred is this kind of useless individual, doesn't really know what he's doing and doesn't really have anything to do in life and very lazy and doesn't really apply himself to anything, but eventually kind of improves enough to marry Mary and and makes a life for himself and quite a prosperous one at that. That's the sort of slightly hopeful thing. And so she's more optimistic about the more ordinary characters in the book than she is about the kind of heroes and heroines in the book.
1: Yeah, that really does fly in the face of the style of the time. When this was released, it was released in eight installments, serialized in a magazine. It was the most popular thing in the day. And a common question at dinner parties was, have you read the latest book? Meaning Middlemarch. And one of the things that I found so interesting about it, and this is, I can't tell if this is high literary criticism or extremely lowbrow, but I've not been able to shake this idea that it reminds me of the television show, The Office. (laughs) I know that's like a silly comedy, but the US version, people have not stopped watching. I mean, Netflix viewership and stock went down by a measurable percentage when The Office dropped off their platform in January. Did people watch Suits in America the same way or not? I don't think so. I think The Office has reached sort of this mythical proportion. I mean, I've watched it over and over and over again as well. And it's because you sort of get this window into people that you might know, and also some people that are a little bit ridiculous and fictionalized, but you think might exist, but you've never met them, you know? And it's something akin to getting to see into the window of the soul of a friend, you know, that you wouldn't necessarily get to know. And this had that feeling to it, you know? Serialization
0: was a very important part of it. I mean, all novels were serialized in the 19th century. It was the way you actually maintained readership and kept your sales up. You're selling print. I mean, these are days you were selling copy and you wanted people to keep up the intensity and not just buy the book, read half of it, chuck it away. You need that customership so you can go on all the time so that's how it was serialized it would have been hot property at the time dickens books were all serialized as well by the way but the difference between dickens didn't know what was going to happen in the third episode and the fourth episode he made it up as he went along but with george Eliot, you feel there's a kind of force of gravity that's propelling everything forwards because she's actually conceptualized it in advance
1: It's interesting because I think that that's one of the things that makes Dickens interesting is that I feel that when I read Dickens that like, oh, none of us really know where this is going. He's going to sort it out. But there's nothing more annoying to me than reading fantastical things that don't pay themselves off. But there's something that from the first sentence in Middlemarch, you just feel like she knows exactly what's going on and you're in good hands and she's going to lead you through it. With Dickens, what excites me is that you don't feel that way at all. At any moment, anything could just sort of fall apart, but he keeps it going. That's a different style, isn't it? And
0: Dickens is an absolute genius. The action in Dickens and the spark and the drama in Dickens. I mean, for the Pickwick Papers, when you go from this sort of happy-go-lucky band of people, you know, travelling around the countryside, and suddenly you descend into total morass of dark horror and violence, you know, that happens in Middlemarch only in one instance, as far as I can see, when Bulstrode says, you know, there's alcohol in the cupboard and Ruffles is given the alcohol and dies. So effectively, he murders this character who's going to betray his past, you know. And that is a bit of Dickensian horror, a bit of real horrid human beings. By and large, that's not so
1: much in the book. Yeah, I feel like Bulstrode is a survivor of a Dickens novel who moved to Middlemarch after he destroyed some Dickensian's character's life. Yes, yeah, something like that. Yes, that's yes, <laughs> yeah. a very
0: good Excellent. That's, that's a great way of putting it. He survived the Dickens novel, ends up in the sleepy original town. you got those narratives, you've got the people, you've got the romance side of it. But of course, the other thing about it is that it's covering contemporary issues of the day. And it's covering that very, very important period in English history between 1829 and 1832. I mean, I'm sure everybody knows what happened in 1832, but it was the first Reform Act.
1: (laughs) Please do explain it. (laughs) Well, in a nutshell,
0: Britain was a totally corrupt, undemocratic morass of traditional awfulness, politically speaking. They had the House of Commons the mother of all parliaments, but that doesn't mean a diddly squat. The seats in the House of Commons were organized into counties and boroughs, okay? And what had happened was, over the years, the boundaries had been redrawn or had been created very haphazardly. And sometimes you've got a borough with literally no one living in it, but a member of parliament represented it. And the member of parliament was chosen by one of the landed aristocracy who lived locally. And sometimes, landed aristocracy actually were responsible for returning 14 members of parliament who were in the House of Commons, not the House of Lords, but the House of Commons, They were responsible for 14 or even more members of the House of Commons. So that is totally corrupt. They weren't being voted in. The electorate was absolutely tiny. You had to have an enormous wealth to be allowed to vote anyway. So it was totally corrupt. If you want to see how bad it was, watch the Poldark series. You can see that's set at the end of the 18th century. And you can see how corrupt politics was in Britain prior to the 1832 Act of reform. They didn't give the vote to everyone. They gave it to people who earned 10 shillings a year or more. And so it vastly increased the electorate, but it also redrew the boundaries and made it fairer. So it was the first step. It wasn't the final step. It was the first step to a much more democratic country. And there was a reform bill and there were reforms to the army. So the whole of the 19th century is a process of reform of society. And Middlemarch is set around that Reform Act of 1832.
1: I looked that up, but I didn't really know the significance of it. It's better than that now? British politics.
0: Now, the size of a parliamentary constituency, which is what I want to be, a member of parliament, is governed between, there's a margin of something like 15,000. It cannot be less than 75,000. It cannot be more than 90,000 or something like that. So I can't remember what the exact numbers are, but it's carefully controlled. And of course, everybody has the vote. Everybody over the age of 18 has the vote. So the franchise has been extended to everyone and has been since the 1920s when women got the vote. That whole process, the democracy we have now, started in 1832. It didn't start with the restoration of Charles II. It didn't start with Cromwell. It started with that Reform Act of 1832. And that is a key thing. Middlemarch is set around that. But the other thing it's set around is great advances in science as well. So this was the time when doctors were no longer underpaid fakers. They were starting to be scientists. And this is what Lydgate fancies himself as not just a doctor, but as a scientist. He's going to apply science to his doctoring and build it up. And he tried to build a hospital. That's him.
1: Right. With the radical idea of putting sick people in a different wing from where they treat the healthy people. (laughs) This radical concept. yeah, Radical
0: concept. It's just extraordinary, isn't it? How bad things
1: were. The medical stuff in here that really stood out to me, also. And I texted this to a friend that it seems that every prescription, all a doctor could do for you was prescribe opium or brandy.
0: Yes, I mean, yes, exactly. Yeah. When Kazorban has had a heart attack, he's obviously a very sickly man. And this chapter starts with, of course, a fantastic quote from Henry VIII. All the chapters start with an incredible quotation. The quotation is How much, methinks, I could despise this man were I not bound in charity against it. This is an incredible quotation she does, and the chapter starts one of the professional calls made by Lydgate soon after his return from his wedding journey was to Lowick Manor in consequence of a letter which had requested him to fix the time for his visits It's a very 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 technical and very modern relationship between kasorbin and Lydgate, where Lydgate gives him an absolute diagnosis, which is about a fatty degeneration of the heart. And he gives it to him and he doesn't talk about anything fanciful, any kind of humors and so on. He talks about a very scientific anatomical analysis of what's wrong with him.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because that didn't stand out to me because that's just what we expect from doctors. But you're right that that was generational at his time. That was the difference between him and a doctor who was 20 or 30 years older than him even as we learned from meeting the other older doctors. But that brings up an interesting aspect of this book, which is that it is so incredibly quotable. And it's one of those books where you'll read a passage and just have to take a breath. There's a million examples of it. I'm just going to read one from the end of chapter... Six. I feel like it's always the last paragraph of a chapter. It just makes you want to read the next thing. But it says, we mortals, men and women, devour many a disappointment between breakfast and dinner time. Keep back the tears and look a little pale about the lips. And in answer to inquiries, say, oh, nothing. Pride helps us. Pride is not a bad thing when it only urges us to hide our own hurts, not the hurt of others. I mean, it's just one of the things that she does that this is the hallmark. And I've talked about this on the podcast before with different books, but the use of the second person is a really bold move for a writer because it puts the reader on the defensive. Anytime someone says us or someone says you, the first thought of the reader is, well, not me. She has the chops to do it. Proust has the chops to do it, but very few writers do. It's
0: breaking the fourth wall, actually, isn't it? She dares to do it. Suddenly mm-hmm. she talks about the first person as well sometimes. There's one I'm saving up, actually, for the end, which is my favorite <laughs> of all quotations of all. But sometimes she says, I, referring to I, the narrator, and suddenly she speaks about herself in the first person. So you're right. So she addresses the reader, and she also talks about herself, and she uses that very, very carefully, rather than just being a kind of an innocent bystand all the time, which is how she is most of the time.
1: Yeah, the person and the point of view of the book changes. It's interesting because it's so modern. And if there was any point to this particular episode of the podcast, for me, it's get people to read Middlemarch. It is not boring. It is fascinating. And if you're a writer, you're not complete until you've read this book, if you write in English. Yeah. Sometimes
0: people have got fear. They can be very off-putting some 19th century novels because in the 20th century, we, we moved to much shorter sentence construction. Graham Greene, for example, a much shorter sentence, a much more declarative sentence construction. But she's easy to read, Elliot, but she demands your attention. I mean, You can't skim it. If you skim it, you just swim off into nothingness. And sometimes you have to reread it. And sometimes it's a bit like a microscope. You've read it, you think, what does she mean by that? You read it again, you feel you're digging down into the meaning of what she's actually talking about. And some things are actually just not like that as well. There's another side of the book, which is more kind of like a history book. This actually, for me, is one of the most important things. It's the way that society is changing from most people living in abject poverty with paternalistic people like Sir James, who builds them cottages. And it's progressing and people are actually gathering education and they're gathering prosperity as well. That's quite an important part of it. And it's also about there are people here who've got enough. And because they've got enough, they're the people who feel that they really want to do things to help other people. And Dorothea is the absolute sort of prime example of that. And Liggate's the prime example of that. They've had prosperous and educated backgrounds. They've had advantages in life and they want to share it. And that was a relatively new thing centuries before. You know, if you had that, you kept it to your own social group and you let all the other people kind of work for you. But they're not happy with that. But also like that. But even Sir James, I mean, Sir James builds cottages because Dorothea nags him to do that. But in essence, he's really quite happy to see all those poor people who work for him living in abject poverty while he lives in his grand house. But of course, Dorothea actually wants to change that. And she realizes that they must change it if they're going to make any progress. There are technical and scientific advances going on at the same time. One of my favorite passages of all is about the railways.
1: One of the things that they're going through is that they're going to put the railway through Middlemarch, essentially. Through
0: the pastures of Middlemarch. So (laughs) where cows graze for centuries and the people who work, there understand the lie of the land, the slopes and where the grass is good, where it's not so good, where the woods are and so on. They're going to slap a railway through it. The railways were an incredible thing, of course, in the United States too. But you think that the railways didn't really start until 1830. By 1853, I could have gone on a train at London and and pretty well got to Berlin without actually getting out of the train. And all I've had to do is just hop across the river and got another train. So they advanced very, very quickly. But of course, they were put through the lands that traditionally were just pastoral and agricultural. And then in this fantastic chapter where Garth is there with Fred, they're seeing what's going on. And they see that the workers on the land attacking the people who are actually laying out the railway. They come with Mm -hmm. pitchforks and they attack them and they have to intervene to actually protect the people who are laying out the railway. And they're saying they have got the right to do it. It's legal. They're allowed to come over the land. The landowners cannot object to it. They have to allow the railway to be put through.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. We had similar scenes in the United States, but ultimately the railway coming through your land makes it way more valuable. Not necessarily the track, but the fact that you had proximity to a station so that your goods, whatever you produce on your land, can be sold nationally and not just locally.
0: And of course, it opened up the West, the railway coming from the West and going towards the West that it actually met. But that was an extraordinary thing. But that was going through wilderness. But of course, this was not wilderness. This was very demarcated pasture and agricultural land. Well, in our our case,
1: on the East Coast, it was going through farmland. And on the West Coast, it was going through desert.
0: But the interesting thing, in our own times, we've got a railway issue at the moment, a big one. We've got something called HS2, which is High Speed 2. High Speed 1 connects London to Folkestone, to the Channel Tunnel. That's High Speed 1. But High Speed 2 is going to go from London to the north and go up and connect London with all the northern cities and build fast rail up to the northern cities. And then there's an enormous amount of opposition to it. Because it goes through some of the most beautiful countryside and some of the most beautiful land in the country. And the people who live there, including the members of parliament, are very much against it. The same opposition is happening now to that major advance as was happening in 1830. We've got railways everywhere, but fast railways are probably the way we're going to be traveling around in 50 years' time.
1: Yeah, as it should be. California has allocated some several billion dollars to high-speed rail that we can't seem to get it off the ground. But I mean, there is no reason why we shouldn't be able to get from LA to San Francisco in 90 minutes.
0: Exactly. Much quicker than you can fly. In Russia, it's happened. St. Petersburg to Moscow, city center to city center in two and a half hours. If you take a flight and you have to go to the airport, you have to get check in, then fly, then come out the other end and then get into the city the other end, of course, it takes much longer.
1: So a few years ago, the 405 was closed in Los Angeles, which is a main thoroughfare, and someone sponsored a race. So JetBlue ran flights from LAX to Burbank Airport all day for free. (laughs) Someone sponsored a race, bikes versus planes. So the cyclist would start at the terminal, and then the person on the plane would run in, and then he would try to ride to the Burbank Airport and beat him to the other end. The bikes won. The bikes won. The bikes won. Yeah, the bikes won. Because they don't have to go through security and all that sorry, yeah, back to Middlemarch. <laughs> well, it's easy to
0: digress from it, but Middlemarch is about progress and about the antipathy towards progress, which was very much the thought of the time. And one of them is in science and medicine. I mean, chapter 10, it is when Lydgate goes to a dinner party and fairly early on in the book, he's coming with all his modern ideas about science and about progress and so on. And suddenly he's coming up against the people there who are absolutely not interested in it and totally suspicious of science and medicine and what could be done. It's a theme that goes through the book as a kind of, documentary, if you like, of life as it was and what was going on in those days.
1: I think about this a lot that one of the things that we're seeing in Middlemarch is our backwards ancestors, right? And even Litgate is a backwards ancestor today but he was the modern person who was talking to his backwards ancestors back then but soon you know before we know it we're going to be the backwards ancestors
0: in our own times he'd be the one who's saying you should do surgery with ultrasound or with laser rather than by cutting open the body or the same arguments i had now aren't they about people who got used to doing things a certain way with a certain amount of success and somebody who says you know you've got to think further ahead
1: than that that's the thing about middle March, is that it is really timeless. There's really nothing in this book that didn't speak to me. Nothing seems arcane or archaic. The thing about doctors prescribing brandy seemed a little archaic to me. But other than that, what the characters are going through, what the people are feeling and the problems that they have are exactly the same as the problems that we have today. And nowhere
0: more than in the really big topic of the book, which is the theme of marriage and the theme of the union between men and women and the central thing of Dorothea, who is this absolute idealist and educated and so on. And Kazorban appears in her life, and she's just bowled over by Cazorbon. She thinks that how could any human being be greater than that? And of course, she marries him, and it starts to disintegrate. As it turns out, he's impotent in every respect, intellectually so too. His key to all mythologies and the fact he doesn't want to finish it, and he doesn't want to research it properly means that he's actually intellectually impotent. He doesn't have the acuity and he doesn't have the energy in his brain to actually find out things or to challenge himself. He just wants to sort of be immersed in this very, very old-fashioned way. So she tries to help him out of that. She tries to help him put his notes together and try to make some progress, but he's really against it. And of course, he dies before he can actually sort that out. But what does he do before he dies? He makes his codicil in the will. So if she then subsequently marries Will, then she's going to lose her estate. She's going to be disinherited. It's one of the nastiest things I've ever heard of anyone doing, actually, in a book. I don't think Iago did such bad things. I mean, it's one of the most evil, mean-spirited acts because Orban knows that he's got limited time. Sooner or later, his heart's just going to switch off and he's going to die. And so he makes sure that her future is spoiled if she marries Will. He can feel it coming. He's a very clever man. He knows that she's very likely to want to marry Will. And so he writes the codicil disinheriting her.
1: What a horrible thing to do. And for people who haven't read Middlemarch, basically Dorothea is one of the main characters, marries Casabon, and he's old and he dies. And she's lovely and we love her from the first moment. And she has this little love affair with someone who's in their life who they both know. And you can feel the sparks in the chemistry from the first time they meet. So Casabon, before he dies, indicates in his will that if she marries this guy, that they will not get to keep any of his money, which is just horrifying. And who cares? You're dead. Well,
0: Casabon, by the way, is supposed to be an intellectual. And he's a priest, too. I mean, he's a vicar, so he preaches. And he's supposed to be looking after will. He's got charge of will. He's supposed to be looking after will and providing for will. And yet he writes that codicil into his testament. Casabon doesn't get my vote at all. The funny (laughs) thing is that George Eliot is sympathetic towards him. And this is where she's so brilliant. She doesn't castigate him. She does not talk badly about Castleman. She just relates who he is and what he is. She doesn't really give her own opinion about him. She just lets us think what we want to think, which I think is absolutely brilliant.
1: Yeah, I think so too. I mean, the only person she really judges is Bulstrode, I think. We said a little bit before that Bulstrode seemed like he had survived a Dickensian novel and ends up in this one. Even his name sounds Dickensian. (laughs) But but yeah, he's the only one that she sort of paints as a bad guy. And Ladislaw ends up missing out on two fortunes. Is that right? Because he declines Bulstrode's fortune. It is too complicated to explain on this podcast, but basically Bulstrode feels like he owes Ladislaw his entire fortune. And Bulstrode is Jeff Bezos level in Middlemarch. Basically wants to set him up for life. But Ladislaw thinks that he is such a horrifying man that he will not accept it. I don't know if that rang true for me. Maybe it's because I'm American, but I feel like, you know what? Dirty money, clean money. Ladislaw didn't do the thing. He isn't the one who defrauded all those people to get that fortune.
0: It brings me back to, this is way off track. I'm going to tell it this story anyway. I remember once I auctioned at a big dinner, fundraising dinner. I auctioned a portrait of Stalin. It was an old portrait of Stalin done in the 1930s, and it was auctioned. I got the job of auctioning it to people in the room, and somebody bought it. And some very, very moralistic person came up to me and said, I think it's terrible that you're auctioning this picture, someone as evil as that, to raise money for charity. I went to one of the Orthodox priests, and he said, what are you talking about? Finally Stalin has actually done something good. (laughs) It's hard to understand why Will would refuse it, but he does refuse it because he feels the money is tainted.
1: Julian, I have so many questions. Who had a portrait of Stalin?
0: What I'm saying is that we're talking about the moral aspects of money.
1: I know that we're talking about that. I just want to talk about the fact that you found yourself in a position to auction off a portrait of Stalin. It's called socialist
0: (laughs) realism and thousands of them were done and they're held in various private collections and somebody was auctioning a portrait of Stalin for charity.
1: But the church didn't mind taking the money at all. Is the concept of dirty money and clean money something that the aristocracy would have the laity believe? I don't think that there are very many extremely wealthy people who would say no to money under any legal circumstance. If it was immoral, like, this is money from a diamond mine, and if you take it, we're going to continue exploiting the people who live in this village. But I mean, as far as something like, hey, I would like to donate $900 million to you, I think pretty much anyone's going to take it. Am I wrong?
0: One of our not-profit companies had a grant from the Russian government And eventually one of the banks said, sorry, we can't take this money because somebody in that bank is on a sanction list. And therefore, you know, we can't handle that money. So it's a little bit
1: like that. So I just realized that I'm wrong. And if what I was saying was true, Julian, you and I would never have met. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> really? Yes. So Julian and I know each other because he was the conductor of the Unfinished Symphony when I premiered it in London, and he was the first conductor of the new piece and conducted the premiere and conducted the upcoming album. But the reason that Julian was the conductor was because Huawei had tried to hire the London Symphony Orchestra, and they said yes. And then they found out that Huawei was involved and they said, no, thank you. And then they tried to hire the London Chamber Orchestra and they said yes. And they found out that Huawei was involved and Huawei was willing to pay whatever. And they said, no, thank you. And finally, we ended up using the English Session Orchestra, a group that we both work with a lot. And yeah, Dom was happy to do it. The difference is that the big London orchestras are philanthropic organizations. They take money from donors. The English Session Orchestra is just an orchestra that you can hire out. And the musicians I don't think had any issue. We don't really think about the politics when we're doing these types of things. So I was happy to write a symphony and I'm sure you were happy to conduct one. But yeah, it's interesting that you're right that at the highest level, these things do need to be considered a little bit differently depending on the circumstances. I had
0: no problem at all with Huawei. As far as I'm concerned, Huawei are putting money into a very, very constructive musical project and I'm happy to take their dollar.
1: People asked me about this. I said Huawei has been the ideal creative partner they basically said, this is what we want to do. Let us know what it costs.
0: <laughs> By the way, you noticed that Lydgate doesn't mind taking Bulstrode's money at all. So you see, Lydgate, who theoretically is the biggest idolist in the book, actually does take Bolstrode's money. It's variable.
1: He had to work for a living, though. Ladislaw had been living off of another man's fortune. I mean, I guess rightfully his fortune, but he didn't know that at the time. He had the ability to take this patrician view of, you know, some money is dirty and some money is clean. Whereas Lydgate went to medical school and he had to earn his money.
0: Lydgate comes from a wealthy background, but he doesn't have very much himself. And he doesn't really have enough to support a family, and he doesn't make any money out of medicine at all. So he's not selling his services. He's not giving medical services to the rich. He's trying to make life better for everybody and trying to build the hospital. And as we all know, that kind of thing doesn't make money. That's a charitable act. But at the end of the book, what he does is he abandons all that and goes and sets up a private practice somewhere and charges big fees and is more or less prosperous, but totally Mm -hmm. disappointed with himself.
1: That's part of the idealism of youth, right? It's like you start and you don't want to deal with money and you don't think that money should influence everything and then you get older and you realize, you know, you kind of need a certain amount of it to get anything done.
0: Well, it's a bit like writing music, isn't it? I would love to write only string quartets and publish them for string players who probably wouldn't even pay for the score. They'd want free PDFs sent to them anyway. So I write production music, which gets used in TV and radio. And there are constraints on what you can write. I mean, you can't write anything. You have to write music that's actually going to be usable by TV production companies. And of course, you have to find your creativity in that sphere. You can't just write what you like. This is what happens to Lydgate, exactly what happens to Lydgate. He starts with idealism. He starts by wanting to build a hospital, by wanting to bring science into medicine and improve the life for everybody. And by the end of the book, he's come to terms with the fact that he just can't live off that. This is a huge book. It can mean a lot of different things to different people. And you and I have got different ideas about it. We see it differently. But for me, you know, the relationships in it, especially the relationship between Lydgate and his wife, Rosamond is very important because he marries her. He's attracted to her. He fancies her, you know, but he's not really deeply in love with her. He probably should be married to Dorothea, but he marries Rosamond. And of course, you know, Rosamond is a very, very superficial character. She doesn't accept that life's difficult. He's not earning money. She secretly goes behind his back to ask his cousin for cash, which his cousin refuses to do. And... She flirts with Will, and there's a fantastic episode in the book when Dorothea goes round to the Lydgate household and finds Will there lying on the floor. Of course, George Eliot can't write anything saucier than that, but you get the impression that, had it gone on a bit longer, that Will and Rosamond would have indulged in something a bit more horizontally inspired.
1: That's funny. I actually read that quite a bit differently because one of the things that she talks about a lot is Will was prone to lie on the floor, prone to lie on the floor, and that that was something that he did quite a bit. People knew That this was part of his personality, that he would be in the parlor and eventually he would be expounding and reciting poetry while lying on the floor. And this was a quirk of his personality and that I thought that that particular scene was actually quite innocent and she saw it differently than it actually was. That Ladislaw was really trying to give her advice and, you know, was really trying to help her and Dorothea walked in at the wrong moment. Yeah.
0: You know what, I think you're right about that. One thing I do want to say, we've talked about the quality of the language and the fact that sometimes you have to dig down and deep into it. It's my all-time favorite passage from this book. It's actually the beginning of a chapter, 27. It starts with a quote, Let the high muse chant, loves Olympian. We are but mortals and must sing of man. Then she writes, An eminent philosopher among my friends... My friend, so she's going to the first person, who can dignify even your ugly furniture by lifting it into the serene light of science, has shown me this pregnant little fact. Your pier glass, or extensive surface of polished steel made to be rubbed by a housemaid, will be minutely and multitudinously scratched in all directions. But place now against it a lighted candle as a centre of illumination, And lo, the scratches will seem to arrange themselves in a fine series of concentric circles around that little sun. It is demonstrable that the scratches are going everywhere impartially. And it is only your candle which produces the flattering illusions of a concentric arrangement. It's light falling with an exclusive optical selection. These things are a parable. The scratches are vents, and the candle is the egoism of any person now absent, of Miss Vincy, for example. Rosamond had a providence of her own who had kindly made her more charming than other girls, and who seemed to have arranged Fred's illness and Mr. Wrench's mistake in order to bring her and Lydgate within effective proximity. So she's replying that metaphor of the scratch and it isn't it's astonishingly the way she writes that and go and do it scratch the surface go and look at the surface of a metal table and you'll see there are scratches and if you look at it without any particular light you'll see there just scratches everywhere if you put a candle to it you see that they're in a circle and that is just the light so it shows you that the way you view things and the way they seem to you are just the way they seem to you But in fact, they mean a whole lot more. And there's an enormous other meaning, an enormous other thing out there that you can't see just because you can only see things from your own point of view. It's a metaphor for the book, actually, because the way you see the book and what it means to you is one thing, but there's so much more in it if you can get outside yourself.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a book that everyone should read a couple of times in their life. Maybe after every big milestone in someone's life, it's good to read because it really speaks to everything. I mean, I don't know if this caught you on this reading, but Dorothea's sister's baby, The way she talks about the baby, and I was reading just her reaction to it, it just really all spoke to me. I was like, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. She has these passages about Celia asking Dorothea to come over and just look at the actions of the baby Buddha. (laughs) This child is doing everything perfect. And I have that same thing where sometimes I'll just stop my wife and say, look, he's," he's just sitting there. He's just sitting there being a baby, but it looks like the most amazing thing. And it could have been written yesterday. I mean, it's 150 years ago or whatever.
0: Astonishing, isn't it?
1: It's really an astonishing book. It's an amazing book. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for recommending it and for forcing me to read it again because I probably wouldn't have for a while and I'm so glad that I did.
0: And thank you for bringing me back to it because honestly, it's a long time since I have read it and going back to it, I realized what's in it. It's shown me a whole load of new things. So
1: So I'm going to end the way that we always end. I'm going to ask you to recommend two books to our audience, one by a living author and one by a deceased author.
0: By a living author, I recommend Hilary Mantel's Bring Up the Bodies the second volume of her study of Thomas Cromwell. I mean, the first one's wonderful, but the second volume is absolutely fantastic. And I recommend that. The third one's out, by the way, as well. I haven't read it, but the second one is absolutely miraculous. It's written in the present tense. You've got to get used to that. After a page, you have got used to being written in the present tense and then you follow it. It's fine, no problem at all. But I warmly recommend that and the first volume, let's say both, but particularly the second volume I'd recommend. So the first one is called Wolf Hall. second one is called Bring Up the Dead Bodies. So I'd recommend that. And by a dead author, I'm going to recommend a work of journalism writing by my father's first wife, whose name was Mavis Gallant. She's a very famous Canadian authoress, and she wrote many wonderful books. She's demanding, very demanding, but it's called The Affair of Gabrielle Roussier, is one of her early works about a French class teacher who has an affair with one of her pupils and how it affects her badly, and how it scandalizes society, and eventually she takes her own life. But I would recommend that book. Thomas Cromwell was actually the hatchet man for Henry VIII. He's been badly painted by history in the movies up till quite recently. He was always shown to be a complete villain, but Hilary Mantel sees it differently, and he's a very, very interesting character, highly intelligent person, and she writes this trilogy of books about him.
1: Wow, and it's historical fiction?
0: It's historical fiction based on a real character.
1: Cool. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Well, Julian, Gallant, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for recommending Middlemarch. And I hope we'll see you again soon. We'll hear from you again soon. We'll read another great British novel together.
0: Lucas, it's a fantastic thing you're doing. Count on me to contribute. I'd love to, okay? But what a wonderful way to spend an afternoon. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thanks. Thanks. <laughs>